I hate it when I can't hear myself talk. <laughs> to Acts chapter 19, please. Acts 19, we turn this morning to pick up at verse 8. Acts 19, verse 8. We read last week that Paul had arrived in Ephesus and of the strange encounter with the disciples there. Today we find a much more conventional situation, the pattern we've come to expect from Paul. He enters the synagogue that is a Jewish place of worship. His passion uh, was for his brethren after the flesh. We know his fellow Jews that they should come to receive Christ as their Savior and enjoy that full orbed salvation that we enjoy here today. Not just salvation from our sins and from hell, but salvation that sweeps us up in sanctification too. A salvation that meets us every day of our lives as we grow in holiness and closer to Christ through the word and the sacraments and prayer until the day when salvation will mean for us glorification. Paul wanted all of this for the Jews, so he, so he started with them. That was his habit. Their response to him was not uh, altogether surprising. We've seen it before in this history. Some believed But in the main, he found stubborn unbelief and hostility from the Jews in Ephesus. So, also following the pattern we've seen before, Paul turns to uh, fulfill his sobriquet, uh, apostle to the Gentiles. He turns to the Gentile community of Ephesus to bring the gospel to them. And what a community it was. Ephesus was at the intersection of a major crossroads of trade in that day, a place where sea and road met, with a population somewhere between a quarter and half a million people. It had a very cosmopolitan feel to it. Beautifully paved, wide roads gave immediate access to the port, uh, to the sea in Ephesus's heyday. I had the uh, privilege of walking on those excavated roads to the city and through the city, the grand marble street, its uh, impressive library and what excavations have been uh, unearthed and uh, set back up there. Uh, None of the ruins there compare to the uh, excavated theater In that place. Of course, if the temple to the goddess uh, Artemis or Diana were still there, that would certainly be the showstopper. It was one of the seven ancient wonders of the world, Uh, the temple was. The uh, with, uh, as as poets used to say, as the ancient poets said, with columns that. Ascended into the heavens was the temple of the goddess Artemis. These days, as I say, there's the grand theater that uh, stands there. It it would uh, seat some 25,000 people. And the acoustics of the place were and still are amazing. One of our party stood on the floor in that theater. And the rest of us who had ascended very high in the uh, stands of that place... Uh, could hear him speaking in conversational tone all the way from the top. So it's something else to imagine standing there 
in that theater to imagine the resounding chants of a mob crying out at the top of their lungs, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians! Paul, or rather Paul's gospel, caused quite a stir in that city, you see, as we'll be reading, as it does in many cities to which it goes. Let's pray. Father, we ask your blessing upon your word. We pray that you will direct our thoughts, that your spirit who is operating in that place and causing your word to find its place in the hearts of Ephesians 2,000 years ago will be pleased to do the same right here in this place. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Acts chapter 19, beginning of verse 8. And he entered the synagogue, a Jewish place of worship, and for three months spoke boldly, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. But when some became stubborn and continued in unbelief, speaking evil of the way, and that, by the way, is the name of this movement of the Christians, what they called them, probably after Jesus, who called himself the way, the truth, and the life. Anyway, when some, uh, some became stubborn and continued in unbelief, speaking evil of the way before the congregation, he withdrew from them and took the disciples with him, reasoning daily in the hall of Tyrannus. This continued for two years, so that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. And God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul, so that even handkerchiefs or aprons that had touched his skin were carried away to the sick, and their diseases left them, and the evil spirits came out of them. Then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists undertook to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, I adjure you by the Jesus whom Paul proclaims. Seven sons of a Jewish high priest named Siva. By the way, Siva probably gave himself that name. There's no other record of a high priest named Siva. If you're uh, a minister, a self-opposed minister in a place like that, I guess you give yourself some names and titles and hope that it impresses people. So the seven sons of a Jewish high priest named Siva were doing this. But the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know, and Paul I recognize, but who are you? And the man in whom was the evil spirit leaped on them, mastered all of them, and overpowered them, so that they fled out of that house naked and wounded. And this became known to all the residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks, And fear fell upon them all, and the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. Also many of those who were now believers came, confessing and divulging their practices, and a number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all, and they counted the value of them, and they found it came to 50,000 pieces of silver. 
So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. Now after these events, Paul resolved in the spirit to pass through Macedonia and Achaia and go to Jerusalem, saying, After I have been there, I must also see Rome. And having sent into Macedonia two of his helpers, Timothy and Erastus, he himself stayed in Asia for a while. About that time, there arose no little disturbance concerning the way, for a man named Demetrius, a silversmith who made silver shrines of Artemis, brought no little business to the craftsmen. These he gathered together with the workmen in similar trades and said, Men, you know that from this business we have our wealth. And you see and hear that not only in Ephesus, but in almost all Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away a great many people, saying that gods made with hands are not gods. And there's a danger, not only to this trade of ours, that it may come into disrepute, but also to the temple of the great goddess Artemis. Maybe counted as nothing. And she may even be deposed from her magnificence, whom all Asia and the world worship. When they heard this, they were enraged and were crying out, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians! So the city was filled with confusion, and they rushed together into the theater, dragging with them Gaius and Aristarchus and Macedonians, who were Paul's companions in travel. But when Paul wished to go in among the crowd, the disciples would not let him. And even some of the Asiarchs, who were friends of his, sent to him and were urging him not to venture into the theater. Now some cried out one thing and some another, for the assembly was in confusion, and most of them did not know why they had come together. Some of the crowd prompted Alexander, whom the Jews had put forward, and Alexander, motioning with his hand, wanted to make a defense to the crowd. But when they recognized that he was a Jew, for about two hours, they cried out with one voice, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians! And when the town clerk had quieted the crowd, he said, Men of Ephesus, who is there who does not know that the city of Ephesians is temple keeper of the great Artemis and of the sacred stone that fell from the sky. Some scholars think that um, this must have been a meteorite that uh, had fallen in the area, perhaps, and uh, that was the sacred stone he was speaking about. He goes on, verse 36, Seeing then that these things cannot be denied, you ought to be quiet and do nothing rash. For you have brought these men here who are neither sacrilegious nor blasphemous of our goddess. If therefore Demetrius and the craftsmen with them have a complaint against anyone, the courts are open and there are proconsuls. Let them bring charges against one another. But if you seek anything further, it shall be settled in the regular assembly. For we really are in danger 
of being charged with rioting today. Since there is no cause that we can give to justify this commotion. And when he had said these things, he dismissed the assembly. You see, it was a real threat. Rome, of course, dominated Ephesus. Ephesus was part of the Roman Empire. And if rioting were breaking out in Ephesus, the Romans might just take away their freedoms of assembly. So... The town clerk made good sense, prevailed happily upon them. I told you that Ephesus was a very cosmopolitan place. And in such places, you also find religions, and oftentimes several different religions. Of course, the official Roman religion was Rome, emperor worship. The Roman Empire was thought to be a god and worthy of the people's sole devotion and worship. But such a vast empire that it spread so widely almost had to tolerate other religions. And, uh, and Rome most certainly did, as long as those religions did not uh, interfere with the allegiance uh, that belonged to Rome. Right here in Rome's Asian capital, for that's what uh, it was indeed uh, served as the, um, the worship of the goddess Diana or Artemis was not quashed by Rome. And good thing, too, because Artemis uh, brought a lot of business to Ephesus. And she did a good deal of stimulating the local economy, particularly through the silversmiths who were busy making shrines to her and selling them. So two religions right off. Roman emperor worship and the worship of the goddess Artemis or Diana. And then there were the magicians, those who burned their books when they were converted, those who had practiced occultism or Satanism. Uh, And we know that there was another religion in Ephesus too, Judaism. Paul spent a few months at least uh, there in the synagogue trying to reason with them and proclaiming the gospel to them. Paul is on the scene now, of course. The Jews have rejected him, and so his message goes to the Gentiles, and he begins holding daily meetings in the hall of Tyrannus, where he reasoned with all who cared to come to that place, probably a place of education, a place for debate and learning and public discussions. Remember, there was no television in those days, no radio. But when we read in a variant text of the book of Acts, a different Greek text, uh, grabs our attention in that uh, parallel account. Uh, According to that text, that is, these meetings took place during the afternoon, something like from one in the afternoon till five in the afternoon. Well, that's quite remarkable that Paul would gather them from one in the afternoon to five in the afternoon, and remarkable that they would gather. This was the time of the siesta, when businesses would close, workers would take off and uh, take a nap. It's been said that more people were awake in Ephesus at one in the morning than were awake at one in the afternoon. When Paul went to Tyrannus to arrange these meetings, Tyrannus, what a name that is, huh? it means tyrant. What kind of mother would name her child 
tyrant, I don't know. Maybe she gave him that name when he was like, oh, maybe two uh, years old. Uh, anyway, Tyrannus was probably more than pleased to rent the hall for those hours, even at a discount, but, uh, but must have scratched his head about whether Paul would have an audience at that time of day. Paul did, of course, so much so that Luke can say, all of the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. So now, at least five religions, emperor worship, Artemis worship, Satan worship, Judaism, and the way, or Christianity. Ephesus was filled with religion, or at least with religiosity. But which religion was right? Which religion was true? It's not hard to see through most of them. Emperor worship was just plain silly. Julius Caesar was the first historical Roman to be officially deified, or given the status of a god, but he was given that title, Divus Julius, the divine Julius, by decree of the Roman Senate on the 1st of January in 42 BC, after he was dead. Some god. The superficiality of the worship of Diana or Artemis is clearly enough seen in the arguments that the Ephesian silversmith offers here, Demetrius. His issue with Paul was really quite simple. He's cutting into our profits. He's cutting into our business by saying that gods made with hands are not gods. Well, duh. (laughs) Is he serious? Demetrius really be taking himself seriously here, arguing that Paul says that gods made with hands are not gods? Is he listening to himself as these words come out of his mouth? Remember how Isaiah poked fun of people who would take a log and cut it in half, and with half of it they'd you know, cook their food, make a fire, and out of the other half they'd carve an idol and then turn around and bow down to it? Just plain foolishness, just stupid. And Demetrius tips his hand and shows his real motive in verse 27. There's a danger not only, he says, that this trade of ours may come into disrepute, but also that the temple of the great goddess uh, Artemis may be counted as nothing. Yes, of course, there's there's Artemis too. She may even be deposed from her magnificence. Somehow I think Demetrius uh, was a whole lot more interested in the future of his pocketbook than in Artemis' magnificence. And then there are the Jews who are left looking so foolish when some of their itinerants, some of their traveling uh, exorcists, try turning Jesus' name into a sort of incantation in the hopes that they will drive out demons to the pleasure of the crowds whom they had gathered for the spectacle. Instead, of course, the sons of Siva become the spectacle. The sons of Siva become the streakers of Siva, running naked through the street, bloodied and bludgeoned uh, by the demons in that man. Obviously, phony religions. But the reality, the genuineness of all religious expressions is not easily discerned. Now, just turn your eyes 
to Christianity. Just think about, let alone all the other religions of the world, Christianity. There are many, many churches that operate under the name Christian. And there are many people as well. Anyone these days can open a storefront, throw up some lights, strum on a guitar, stroll around on a stage, and hang a sign on the front wall that says, Church. Anyone can say he is a Christian, and many people do, particularly here in the American South. But how do you determine which is phony and which is the genuine article? Well, look at the Christianity that Paul brought to Ephesus as it's set against the foil of these false religions. There are some marks that only genuine, real, true religion, the genuine article, bears. First, this true religion, the genuine article, brings liberation from irrationality. Liberation from irrationality. It truly is irrational for silversmiths and artisans to take silver, melt it down, pour it into a mold, let it cool, break the mold, polish it, buff it to a shine, put it on a shelf, and then bow down to it. That really is irrational. The prevailing religion of our day does not involve statues and images, does it? But ideas. Evolutionism is the religion of our nation. It is taught religiously in our American classrooms as the gospel truth. You, dear children, they are told, came from monkeys. And monkeys came from fish. And fish came from tadpoles. And tadpoles came from algae. And algae came from, well, from a big, big bang. And suddenly, from nothing, spontaneously, something. And over billions and billions of years, random atoms, yes, you've learned the laws of thermodynamics, but forget those for now. Over billions and billions of years, atoms randomly came together. And here you are. That's how your eyeball, in all of its intricacy, was formed, the optic nerve, how the tiny parts of your inner ear came to be, how the exceedingly complex human brain came into existence. A big bang, random particles, and voila. Now who looks irrational? <laughs> but people who would deny God simply must justify themselves somehow and their lifestyles, and they will cling and they will even shackle themselves to the utterly irrational, will bow to idols of their own imaginations, whether of wood or stone or silver or science textbooks, will bind themselves to a worldview that is based fundamentally 
an irrational, illogical, even self-contradictory tenets like the Big Bang theory in order to cling to their unbelief. What Paul offered was freedom from irrationality. Freedom that the gospel still offers today. There is nothing irrational in the Bible. There is nothing that requires you to violate the laws of logic. Now, there are some things that require faith, to be sure, but it is the freedom of reason that Paul offers in uh, Tyrannus's hall. Reason that meshes perfectly with reality. And that brings freedom through faith in Christ. The shackles of irrationality, of the, both the obvious, evident, and the subtle contradictions inherent in every form of idolatry from Diana to Darwinism, disappears with the gospel freedom of the mind to think and the heart to believe. Second, true religion is marked by real devotion. Gathering on hot afternoons for instruction in Tyrannus' hall when your co-workers are home taking the daily nap, that was devotion. Remember that old saying, only mad dogs and Englishmen go out in the noonday sun. Well, I'm not saying that they were either mad or English, but there they were, devoted They loved to hear the preaching of God's word. They could hardly get enough of it. The kind of preaching to which we're accustomed today, a half hour in the morning, a half hour in the evening, that would only have whetted their appetite for more. How do you know whether you have the genuine article yourself that you have true religion, so to speak? You love God's word. You are devoted to having your mind and your life transformed by its truths and by its holy precepts to live. Oh, how I love your law. Those are the words of the genuine article. Not that we live them perfectly, of course. Remember who it was who said those words? It was David. Think about that. Far from perfect, but he was devoted. And where there is the genuine article, you find a devoted heart who loves God's word. Loves the preaching of God's word attends on the preaching of it as much as possible. And closely related to that, third, real religion, the genuine article is marked by repentance and new obedience. Genuine repentance is the thing that is missing from so much of modern American Christianity. There is in our day a widespread Christianity that is easy. 
It is cheap Christianity. It requires nothing. Nothing from its adherence. But look at these Christians. Having come to salvation, they understood that when it comes to Jesus, it's all or nothing. He will have all of us, all of our heart, all of our soul, all of our mind, all of our strength. He brooks no compromises with the world. He does not share the throne of your heart with anyone or with anything, including you. You cannot love both God and money, Jesus said, one or the other. Or as we've heard Joshua say in our evening series, choose whom you will serve, singular, whom you will serve. These Christians in Ephesus understood that. So when they realized that the books of magic that they had on the shelves of their home libraries could not cohabit with Christ in their homes or in their hearts, they brought them and they burned them. Now, that would be remarkable enough if what we were talking about here was a dime store collection of paperback copies. But they weren't. Verse 18, many of those who were now believers came, confessing and divulging their practices, and a number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all, and they counted the value of them and found that it came to 50,000 pieces of silver. I don't know exactly how that would translate into our modern currency. It's been proposed that a silver piece would be roughly one day's wages. If so... The value of 50,000 pieces of silver would be in the millions today. And since there are no attorneys in the room, I'll go ahead and say, if calculated according to attorneys' daily wages, (laughs) who knows? Anyway, it was costly repentance. It was costly repentance. It was genuine turning from one lifestyle to faith in Christ. What about you? Do you have the genuine article? A real religion, a true relationship with Christ? The answer will be the same as the answer you give to this question. Has it cost you to follow Christ? Has it cost you something? Has it cost you anything to follow Christ? Oh, what must I surrender to follow him? What pleasures have you denied yourself because you are a Christian? Or what must you leave behind? Statistics tell us that there are among us here in this room men who are regularly viewing pornography. Would you follow Christ? Then you must burn the books. You must, if needs be, pull the plug on the computer. Loving and serving your husband these days, 
dear wives, may not be nearly as appealing to you now as it was the day you said, I do. Burn the books. In allegiance to Christ, respect your husband and submit to him. Children, would you rather play video games than the homework and the reading that your parents have assigned to you on the Lord's behalf? The work the Lord, therefore, has given to you? Then burn the books. Not your homework books. The other. (laughs) The video games. (laughs) Keep the homework books. Burn the books. Turn them off. And get to the work that the Lord has given you to do with joy. And as unto him, husbands, join the children. It's hard to to fathom this, but grown men are now whiling away hours on video games. Unbelievable. And in the meanwhile, neglecting their wives. I guess it's not that hard to believe after all, because television was the first thief to which we gave the hours, to whom we gave the hours. Burn the books. Burn them. Maybe you're reading literature or websites that aren't fitting a Christian. There is these days a nonstop supply of smut, or even just the small and the insignificant, the latest Hollywood chatter. Who cares? A Christian's mind is much better served by concentrating not on Brad and Jolina and Angelina as on Samson and Delilah and Deborah. Burn the books. Where there is genuine Christianity, there is genuine repentance from sin and from silliness, replaced by sanctification and seriousness. There are other things we might add to the list. Of course, I could go on and on, but in light of the time, I'll just add one more. Fourth, real religion, the genuine article, glorifies Jesus. Verse 17, in the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. Alas, we could go a long, long time, can't we? Long periods of time with a Christianity that seems utterly divorced from any genuine affection for any real love for devotion to and honor paid to Jesus. A Christianity mindless of Christ. But he's our redeemer. He's the lover of your soul. Christianity's a lot of things. Of course it is. Christianity's a lifestyle. It's an ethic. It's a fellowship, it's a hope for the future, it's a purpose for living. But let's remember this. Christianity is, above all of that, a relationship with Jesus. We don't devote ourselves to the reading and the preaching of God's word. We don't burn the books of sin that hinders us from the Christian life because we want to do better. Because we want to be better people. 
This isn't some grand self-improvement course that we've enrolled in as Christians. No, we do these things out of love for Jesus. And so that our love for Jesus may grow and prosper and deepen and strengthen and grow richer. So that Jesus may be the more glorified in us, in our lives, in our bodies. And extolled in our hearts and our minds and those of others too. The genuine article of Christianity is all about the genuine article who is Christ. As it was for our spiritual ancestors in Ephesus. As it was for Paul. So it is for us. It's all about Jesus. Amen.